welcome to Alexandra Palace, beaming out across the airwaves, across the great British Empire and the Commonwealth. Today I'm speaking to one of our individuals, one of our cousins, in the great town under, which is Australia. Hello, Mr. Craig, who are you? Hello, Mr. Mike. Yes, well, <laughs> um, I'm not sure whether it's daytime, evening or morning right now, but uh, here in sunny Sydney, Australia, well, I think it's sunny. Sure well, dark, I'm not but, sure where you, um, you're in Australia, are you? Where, whereabouts in Australia are you? Um, I don't know, I'll have to ask somebody. Hang on. Uh, oh, Sydney, sorry, Sydney. Sydney. As can be seen, our roving reporter in the field. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, we're being stupid here. We were trying to work out how to make a gag out of this, but uh, and we thought, well, we'll do three or four gags. But yes, I'm speaking to Mr. Craig Waters, uh, down under in Australia, live from Sydney Harbour Bridge with... With, I mean, this is an exclusive with the Opera House in the background. I mean, how, It's pretty and, good, and uh, I did stage it. And well, it's 4G as well, so it must be going well. As well. <laughs> you know, in years to come, we'll be able to tell our grandkids about this. You know, oh, when I was young, I was on the bleeding <laughs> edge of technology, I was. But anyway, um, for those who don't know you, Craig, um, can you introduce yourself to the audience? I'm sure people have heard your name and seen you before, but let's pretend that they've never heard of you. Sure. Okay. So I'm at CS Waters One on Twitter. Um, I currently am a virtualization architect for Pure Storage. Uh, I also run the, the Melbourne VMware user group, so I co-lead that. Um, I recently got involved with the OpenStack user group as well, which has been quite interesting. So, so yeah, that's um, kind of me. Uh, I do a bit on the uh, V community. Um, hope to see everybody at VMworld and so on and so forth. So yeah. All right. Now, one of the things I wanted to ask you as a first question was about that transition to vendor land. Uh, we, we were talking offline. Uh, a friend of mine is thinking about making the transition into to vendor land, and, and knowing that I did it a few years ago, he's, we're going to have a chat, and he's asking for advice. And it, it, it made me think of, of you, because before uh, Pure Storage, you were with another vendor, but before that, you'd spent a lot of time like doing it for real, being a customer, you know, actually building <laughs> these things. So I wanted to ask you, the question is, if if you had the same conversation that I'm expecting later on today, if somebody was asking you for advice about making that transition from the world of being the customer to work of working for a vendor, what, what advice yep. would you give them? Um, it's a good one. I mean, I guess that's kind of my unique position is I've been in the integrated space, the customer space, and now the vendor space as well. Um, I think I think probably the biggest thing I'd say is is, is um, the, the thing with going to work for a vendor is on the plus side you're working for a technology company and it means that what you do on a day-to-day -day basis is going to be around you know a, a subset products of uh, technology products for that particular vendor and then what the integration points that product is with us so so you're kind of zooming in on a specific use case or on a on a specific subset of, of, of components that make up that solution um, that means, you know, if you're a technologist like me, it kind of it's great because it means you're doing it day in, day out. Um, I think on the, I know the cautious side of it, what I would probably say is, is that um, when you join a vendor, you kind of see what really goes on behind, um, you know, with the sales cycle and how vendors talk to customers and what what they actually do, what goes on in the background. So you know, when you win that prize at that um, at that conference or that, well, there's a reason behind that, and it's, you know, it may be seen to be that it's. Um, uh, openly given as a, as a win, but but typically there's some sales motivation around that. So I guess I guess what I'm trying to say is is really it's that the the veil becomes open and you kind of 
get an understanding for the workings of why these events go on and what purposes are those events and and maybe some of the silver lining gets removed as part of uh, of seeing that reality yeah. um but yeah i mean i see that i mean i mean maybe it's perhaps if you are technology focused and you're into technology there is a tendency to forget that you know what vendors have is a product and what vendors want to do is sell that product i mean it's no different than if you had a phone to sell or a car to sell or guitars to shell i'm just or a shredder to shell it's still a, a, a product that has to be sold which if you're involved in the consumption of that technology maybe you're concerned about price and licensing but you don't see the machinations of what's going on and at the day they're not charities they're commercial companies aren't they, they have a product to sell just like any any company that you work for whether it was an insurance company or a banking company they have a product to sell whether it's an insurance package or accounts or some sort of financial service everybody's in the business of selling whatever it is that the business has got to get in the hands of customers at the day mm. vendors are no different software vendors are no different yeah and i mean you know you, you're completely right now and i think i mean that you know there's a positive spin to that really as well because what you're actually doing is you're you're actually seeing how sales organizations function and and what the components are and and how you know like, like um, you know, i always remember being in the customer space you, it was really sometimes challenging to actually get to the fault coal face to determine what how that um, company operated and what you know what what the company was producing or what it was creating because you were stuck in you know within the IT field and so you kind of saw the endpoints of that but you didn't always see what what it looked like end to end mm. and I think that's kind of you know what, what's good in this situation is is that that's the sole purpose of that organization so it's actually quite you know it, it's quite easy to deconstruct the organization to determine what those different roles are and it's just like any other company yeah you've got sales you've got marketing you've got you've got mm. all those different um, you know components that make up a business mm. and it's really interesting to see that end-to-end -end and see where you know you sit on a booth at an event and 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 you show the, the product to somebody and then how that then goes for you know life cycle from there to then maybe showing interest and then doing presentations and then doing proof of concepts and then going through to a you know um, a POB and raised you know so it's very interesting process you know I, I think um, it gives you a lot of insight into how those organizations function mm. One of the things I've found interesting about my switching to the Evo Rail team has been this is the first time I've been on the inside and there's a team of developers, there's the execs, the PM, the PMM, the, the VP. Over on the other corner you've got the people who do all the documentation and they are all different personalities and you've got the business development people who want to get the product in the hands of customers and work with partners and they're all different they've all got different priorities and they've all got different personalities and yet somehow you've got to bring them all together to actually come to an end yeah. goal and what I'm what I think I probably say to this guy is if you're bored with what you're doing currently and you're looking for something different then make the switch because it is different and if what floats your boat is something that's different and makes you look at things in a different way then you'll get something positive out of it it's, you're not going to find yourself doing the same thing you did in the previous role. Whether you stay in vendor land indefinitely for the rest of your career may or may not be the case. You might find after four or five years, well, thanks very much for that, but now I want to do something totally different. But definitely, I'm going to say, yeah. when, you know, if, if you're getting a bit stale in what you're doing and you want something different, it's definitely different. And if you respond yeah, well no. to that because you like things that are making you think or 
giving you issues that you've never seen before or ideas you've never seen before, then only positive can come from that rather than being on the treadmill of, I'm doing the same thing I did before but with somebody else. You know, often that can feel a bit stale very quickly once you realise, oh yeah, the personality types are much the same. So that's been my And it is a, yeah, I think you're right. And I think that's kind of the big point is, it, is that, look, number one, you know, be happy in what you do and if you're not, then do look at alternatives. But I think, you know, for me, you know, I, I wasn't sure at first and I, and I took a step in and at first I was kind of like, uh, you know, it was a big surprise to me. Uh, you know, some of this veneer kind of chipped away and I realised what these processes were about. Mm. But what then happens, you see, is, is that you realise that you've actually got the opportunity to change something and to influence something, mm. whereas before it might have been an infrastructure in, a, in, a, in an organisation. Here, you can actually change individuals and, in like, you know, you, you talked about um, being involved in product management. You know, if, if a customer's got, like, a problem, you can actually identify what that problem is and then you can actually go and talk to product mm. management and say, well, you know, what can we do to change this to make it actually easier? You know, you, you can have a direct impact on the success of that system, that solution within a within a customer space. And I think that is very empowering. Hmm. Okay, well, I think we're both very positive about it, but it's going with it with open eyes, I think, is the, the mm. message. So, um, It's what, definitely different, and I yeah. think that's that was a, the kind of point you said. So, if you want to change, it's definitely different. Definitely yeah. different. So, um... With me and uh, Craig, obviously, I've gone backwards and forwards about uh, what we might talk about uh, this morning and this evening. <laughs> Your day is <laughs> coming to an end as my day begins. Um, one of the, I'm from the future, mate. You're from the future. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, the, that might be a good segue, actually. Uh, talk about what's what's coming and what's been. Um, I, Craig, on the show, now, you know, you think it's only a short while ago, but it was probably now three years ago, maybe. Um, and at that time, we were talking about the rise of the generalist, uh, jack of all trades versus master of one. Um, and we, I kind of framed that discussion as a kind of infrastructure wag, the frustrations of infrastructure. And we talked about how convergence had brought together and this is before we were talking about hyperconvergence, the storage, the switches, the servers, and how that impacts on the way organizations are structured. So I guess one way of phrasing this is, we predicted the rise of the generalist over the jack of all trades. Is that a prediction that's turned true, man from the future? Because you're a few hours ahead <laughs> of me, you can see whether yeah, it's yeah. become true before I can, because it might come true in the next eight hours, you see. So. Man from yeah. the future, I, I, tell, me, tell me, was your prediction true? It, it is the year of the VDI, yeah, <laughs> right now. So, <laughs> sorry, man, I had to put that one in. Um, I, no, no, like, um, I'll be straight honest with this. Like, being a generalist has probably been one of the b biggest key uh, skill differentiators that I've had uh, working in IT. Mm. Being, able to, being able to talk to people about network configuration, then about storage, and then about um, server configuration has been definitely a skill that I, that's taken me places that, I, that it wouldn't have otherwise, yeah? Mm. Um, and, and I think, you know, that um, the, the challenge right now, I mean, like, you, you know, you quite rightly say about the rise of the generalists, the, the challenge right now is, is that you, you still got um, a lot of organizations that have adopted, and I, I, I'm going to set away a bit on this, but um, I read a post the other day by a guy called Lindsay Hill, you know, about this, you know, the specialist versus generalist, and he really, he really put it succinctly around how idle was kind of the you know, the, the cause of this, um, you know, this specialist thing going on in organizations. Mm. And what I'm trying to get at is, is that um, 
with that, you know, with a lot of organizations take on things like ITIL for a framework to be able to like, you know, quantify the effort and the, the process around, you know, running infrastructure and maintaining and managing infrastructure. You know, I, I'm not a big ITIL advocate. And I think that what that's done is, 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 is in, in placing people into, um, you know, specialist roles, then it's actually, you know, it's actually put you in a position where, you know, you're not able to, comp you know, you're not able to be involved in the whole end-to-end -end process of, of, you know, doing some provisioning or what, what, whatever operational task it may be. Mm. And in that respect, you know, you, in that siloing, what, what, what's kind of occurred now is, is that, you know, you look at how technology is kind of changing at the moment and probably talk about this more about, you know, simplifications of some of these uh, infrastructure components, you know, like convergence, like hyperconvergence, those sort of things, that you actually need to have that knowledge of how those different, how the network, how the computer, how the storage actually interact. Um, and, and I think what we talked about at the time was that, um, you know, the, um, the, the role uh, within these um, environments was kind of changing where you actually do need to know those integration points. You can't just get away with being a storage specialist or a, um, I mean, I think storage specialist and probably a compute specialist, maybe I think there's still validation around being a network specialist, but I guess, you know, with the, the rise of um, software-defined networking and stuff, that's probably going to change uh, pretty soon. But um, I think very much in having those three skill sets, it's kind of really putting, giving you an advantage, um, understanding the relationships um, and and also from a you know from a point of not just being an engineer but also rising into like um, you know career development around things like being an architect you know where you have to know the relationships between those systems and I think that's kind of the key the key point mm. um, I th think when we when we spoke it was really around um, it's kind of a while back now but it was really around this concept of like breaking down those barriers within an organisation and it you know historically that would be a cultural change and a cultural shift but whereas what you've got now is is that, uh, and, we, and I kind of hinted at this at the time, is that it was a it was technology that was actually forcing that that change. And I think now we've kind of gone, you know, full circle to a degree. Whereas um, to remain relevant, organisations need to to make that change now. Not it's not something optional. It's not something that's born out of culture. Um, I think you know really for you know internal IT systems to to, to remain. Um, you know, competitive compared to, you know, public, public cloud offerings, those sort of things. It's really down to those, was a, sorry about that, it's a no, very good pass there. Um, it's really down to those organizations to look at adopting new technology because that's a differentiator for them. I think one of the interesting things that you said there, and maybe this is a more general thing, is when change happens in life generally, people always look to find out what the causes are. And what I've often noticed is there's something in the human spirit that seeks one cause that uh, explains a set of changes, when actually what it is is multiple causes working sometimes against each other or with each other uh, that creates change. And therefore, when we try and say it's this that's caused it, then what you end up doing is oversimplifying grossly uh, how events happen. And it's funny that you mentioned a few things there. You mentioned frustrations around ITEL. You mentioned uh, new technologies coming in. At the time, we were talking things like VCE and FlexPod as being the technology change. Now we're looking at other things being the, the drivers behind it. And then not to ignore it, uh, the virtualization side of things, because virtualization demanded 
integration with network and storage and for mm. a lot of us who came from the server side of things that demanded more investment of our time and energy in understanding how those things work. What I think is interesting about the opening comment though is that you mentioned ITIL and I was telling I was talking to Carmel about this and what ITIL was and you know what it is and why it's there. There is a generation of people who've built a career off the back of ITIL of mm-hmm. I introduced ITIL into this organization yeah, yeah. and I successfully uh, integrated ITIL into this uh, organization. I wonder though whether that means like anything in life there those people are emotionally and psychologically financially invested in that model um, and therefore want to move their career up the layers promotions off the back of something like ITIL. Is ITIL a silo? Is ITIL, do we have ITIL <laughs> huggers who don't want to let go of ITIL because it's done something pretty good for their career? Is that me being cynical or is there some truth in that? I think there's a lot of truth in that. Mm. I, mean, I, know that I know of those people, yeah, and I think they all work at the office as well, but um, yeah, nah, <laughs> I know of those people. I know who you're talking about, yeah. No, I agree completely with that. And in fairness to those people, I think when ITIL came uh, around, it wasn't, oh, well, this will be a good way of grifting my career and working my way up the corporate ladder. People genuinely, sincerely felt that a new model was needed because the previous model, whatever that was, was regarded as broken. I think what's ironic is speed forward into the future where you are, you know, eight hours in front of me, or, or if it is 12 hours in front of me, probably more, 16 hours in front of me, it's now regarded, oh, well, that model's now broken. That's the problem. That that ITIL thing is the problem. Now we need a new model. <laughs> so we'll be yeah. having this discussion in ten years' time about you know this model, that generalist, it just didn't work and we need to go back to people being more specialised <laughs> in what they do, you know. Yeah. Is that simple? Well you look at any framework, you know you look at any framework, I mean it's about it's about taking complex systems that are integrated and try and simplify them. Mm. But all you're doing is adding another framework. So you're creating a level of complexity by adding that extra framework in the first place. Mm. And I think that you know that, that kind of highlights what you're saying where people have made a career out of introducing that level of complexity to try and reduce the overall complexity that's already occurring within the organization. I've just had an idea. So, that if, if you are an ITIL hooker, what you should do is hook I, ITIL until it's on the cusp of losing pro, uh, popularity and then adopt an entirely different model and be the advocate for it for the next 10 years and then when that model goes out of fashion pick up your ITIL skills again and go yeah I, I implemented ITIL some 20 years ago I know how to do this so it doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't matter if, you're, if your only goal is pursuing and, and progressing your career and building a, a pension pot you mustn't be too emotionally invested in these various models, but just know how to spit and switch between one and another as the wind blows. You know, that's all. That's me being very cynical. I think. I think. Yeah. I mean, you know, like going back to that whole the whole complexity managing complexity with the framework. I think that's kind of the key, really, with ITIL. Mm. Like you're saying, is it's really about let's introduce another layer of complexity to manage the complexity. So, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't think. Um, I guess if you look at things like DevOps coming on now, you know, like organizations, if they're running development silos, you know, running development organizations within the company, and if mm. they're managing the, you know, fast development of applications, then, you know, it, it does, it, does ITIL even have a, you know, have a role to play? Mm. Um, uh, w- one piece I'll say on it, just finally, is that um, a number of the organizations I, I worked for where they tried to adopt it, 
what we found was we just didn't have enough people to actually cover the roles that were required to run idle because you had a, a release manager, a change manager, a configuration manager, a, you know where that's going. I mean, that's fine if you're a, you know, a, a large corporation with thousands and thousands of employees. Um, how does that work then when it's an organization where you're talking yeah, like hundreds of employees? Yeah, with lots of hats on his head, one hat on top of another mm. hat. <laughs> so, and I but then, but then how, you know, where's the, where are you getting the checks and balances for implementing that kind of framework? Because the, the manu, same guy the that's manu, doing... The man who uh, proposes is the man who uh, uh, disposes, yes. Well, that's what I mean. So you've just, all you've done is created a, um, a dictatorship, really, at the end of the day, isn't it? So... Well, I don't know. There's something to be said for that. When I was self-employed, I was my own boss, so I used to approve my own expenses. So it wasn't that dissimilar. I would submit my expenses to the company as an employee. I would look at those expenses as the boss, and they were always excellent and yeah. fine. So you know, there is. Did you, to be did you said. wear a different hat then? Yes, employee hat. Boss <laughs> I'm the boss now. <laughs> I, no, when it came through, I'd be like, "Bloody hell! What's this uh, four hundred pound barbell for? What, what were you doing? And what?" what why have you got lap dances on your expenses? You know, oh, well, that was uh, entertainment of co of customers. Okay, approve. You know, so. <laughs> so anyway, <laughs> moving swiftly on before I incriminate myself, um, and it's kind of related because we were talking about how technology changes, um, or is changing, or has changed, or will change, depending on where you want to rewind this conversation to, the way people work. And that, that's associated with a particular technology which is changing things. One of those technologies happens to be Flash. I mean, I wonder whether somebody would actually say that the previous decade was a revolution brought upon by virtualization, and this decade is a revolution that's being brought about by not the complete end of spinning rust, but uh, the rise and 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 rise of Flash. Not just mm. in new technology companies who've adopted Flash for solving a particular problem, but also the fact that customers are, are using it. Is that a silly thing to say, do you think? This is the decade of Flash? Uh, I think it's probably one of the most significant changes. I mean, I'm going to say that I work for a, a company that leverages that, that, that technology, but um, I to me, the, I think the fundamental difference with Flash is that, you know, traditionally with those kind of technologies, it would be, the technology would be born out of enterprise and then it would become a consumer product. You know, like it would be, you know, born and discovered enterprise, it would be like, you know, standardized and then it would actually come into, yeah, yeah. Whereas Flash has kind of been the complete reverse of that. Mm. You know, Flash was kind of, Flash has kind of, you know, come from Apple, come from, you know, the iPod and the iPhone and the, you know, tablets, those kind of technologies, and now it's actually coming into, um, you know, into the enterprise IT environment, and really it's about cost economics, it's about how cheap can I get Flash, and so how, how can I use it, and that, that's kind of why, why you tend to find there's different, you know, implementations of Flash, you know, you have some caching, you know, some hybrid style uh, Flash implementations, or you've got the all Flash stuff, which is kind of like a, a newer um, method of, of implementing Flash today. But they're all born out of, you know, the, the fact that, um, you know, that it not being spinning rust, it means that you can, the stuff that you can do with the technology that you couldn't traditionally do with spinning rust, you know, you can, you know, from a storage perspective, you can implement things like deduplication and compression, and you can do those things in line because of the performance that you can gain from Flash. You know, traditionally before then, these were new technologies that are, you know, do I want to enable uh, deduplication on run? Do I want to get that benefit? What's the cost? 
oh, that's something that I might want to do post-process because of the performance impact that I'm going to have on my on my spinning discs, you know. So, so, so I think you know I'm, I'm talking about it from a storage perspective, but I think that's kind of always been, you know, the the dependent component within virtualization solutions has always been storage. You know, you you, you ask anybody, you know, like about. Uh, you know, I, I remember um, VDI projects being quoted that storage is like sixty percent the cost of the of the, of the, of the project, or the um, you know the reasons why we silo um, data today is because of the performance of those storage arrays that we're we're running on. You know that we're running that data on. So, so to me, I think it's a fundamental shift, and, it, and it's not just a you know a cool tech fundamental shift, but it's also more about of a simplification mm. by the fact that. The, if I reduce all these, you know, mechanisms that I use to take slow spinning disks to make performance, and then having to size these solutions based upon being able to make that performance, you know, um, good enough to run those particular workloads. If I remove all that, all of a sudden, storage just becomes a, you know, administrative model where I'm just, you know, I'm just sizing a LUN because of the capacity that I need. I'm not having to go and build a RAID group and have aggregates and have RAID, you know, I'm not having to determine all this complexity just to be able to pull performance out of something that's inherently not very performant. Sure. So I think that simplification, is, and we're kind of seeing that now, you know, you look at the new technologies in, sorry, I've lost the um, uh, Sydney Opera House there, I've got to back bring again, it back mate. in, but, but, it, but if you look at the new technologies now, there's kind of a driver around things like higher the convergence, you know, things about it's all about simplification. It's all about, you know, um, simplifying how you manage and maintain that device as part of your infrastructure. Who, who cares to... about managing LUNs? Who cares about maintaining storage? You know, who cares about those things at the end of the day? I, I would much rather do. go over the weekend. <laughs> Sorry? I said storage admins do. Um, one thing I would say is let, let's go a bit <laughs> like big picture is I, I was asking about the significance of Flash and whether I would be overstating mm. its impact in the current period that we're in. But uh, one idea I had was uh, about bandwidth changes and how increased capacity and increased throughput can be a game changer. So, I mean, it wasn't a short while ago that I had my first broadband connection. They called it broadband. It was 512K. Now... Doing five, I mean, that was a step up from 57K, you know, modems mm. and all that kind of crap, for want of a better word. But now I think in a lot of cases, parts of the internet is just unusable, unusable at a 512K value. Um, so I, I had a website, a banking website, that was always like timing out and crashing. As soon as I went up to my 8 meg, 16 meg, I'm now on 24 meg. That particular uh, website just works brilliantly um, without a problem, which is neither here nor there. But I mean, look at what we're doing now. You're on a 4G connection on the other side of the planet. I'm in the UK and we're having a face to face chat. And that is a game changer, I think, in the sense that, in the same way this flash thing is, that uh, once uh, capacity becomes irrelevant, what you can then do, I mean, this kind of conversation we were having now would have been unthinkable maybe even four or five years ago. We'd have to say, oh, well, you need to be on, you need to be on a Wi-Fi or cable. Or oh, don't be at a hotel, because hotel Wi-Fi always yeah, sucks. Yeah. <laughs> you know, those <laughs> yeah. sorts of things that we used to talk about five or six years ago 
Uh, oh, I really need to be in my own office where I've got a wired connection to my own internet, which is not contended with anybody else to get reliability. You know, and therefore I can't, I'm trying to use that as an analogy that if you apply that to disk, what does that then allow us to do because you've taken that limit out of the equation? The term I've used for it is taking the spindle out of the equation. And what mm. makes things complicated is when you have lots of variables in an equation. Yeah. And each one of those variables could be different and moved up and down. If you take the spindle out of that equation, you make the calculation simpler because you've taken um, a chunk of complexity out of that. I mean, I guess, I mean, one thing I would say, though, and I have to be a bit honest here, is uh, in some environments, like in Evo Rail, for example, the spindle is still part of the equation. You've got uh, uh, SSD, which is both a read and write cache, not just a read-only cache, as some yeah. storage arrays used to use them. It's read-write. But fundamentally, that is backed off to disks. And you, obviously, you're working for an organization which is pure SSD throughout. So without us trying to like get into the uh, hassles of you know representing different companies, how do you feel about that difference? Is there still a use case for? Is there a role for hybrid still in environments? A combination of SSD and disk, and can you can you say that without incriminating yourself? Because <laughs> obviously pure storage is full SSD all the way through. There does seem to be a schism. Maybe we can talk about this in a more general way without mentioning either company, that in the storage well, market say, generally, uh, there is this hybrid, some have gone completely solid state, and you know, pure isn't one of them, there's, there's others, others have gone uh, hybrid, there does seem to be that kind of dichotomy in the approach with SSD, what do you feel about that? Man from pure well, it's, storage. It's about, <laughs> yeah, it's about economics again, isn't it, at the end of the day, I mean right now, you know, um, hybrid's really in place because, um, you know, the cost to have all flash is, is can be exp you know can be quite expensive depending upon the type of you know the type of medium flash medium that's being used. Mm. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, uh, again, you know, relying on things like data reduction technologies like deduplication and compression can reduce that economic buy of how much you know how much flash I need to purchase an array and how much I actually need to to run those workloads. But I think I think it's also like kind of a, a complexity thing as well still. Because the, the challenge with a hybrid is, is that you still have to size that um, that uh, SSD to be able to fit the active working set, mm. and so now what, while I'm saying that's you know that that's not for everybody. I mean that's you know for a lot of organisations that's probably going to be a fine step to take, mm. but it's just another layer of complexity that needs to be dealt with. So I think as the cost of flash comes down, I think as um, you know the Samsungs and the um, and the companies in the world who are, who are manufacturing. Uh, silicon are going to be able to do it for. They're going to be able to do more for for less. I think there there, you know, there was an announcement some time ago now um, about manufacturing. Uh, I think it was like uh, ten uh, terabyte SSD drives. Mm. Um, I mean that's not here today, but it's you know it's going to be a matter of time before that's those kind of technologies come online. It's not about like three D NAND um, mm. manufacturing capabilities. So you know it's an economic thing. You know, and I think hybrid still has its place today because traditionally using you know, enterprise MLC, those kind of um, SSD technologies, they've had a cost associated with them sure. until that kind of cost comes down, you know. But, well, but I think, you know, that's probably going to be something that's probably going to change in the next, you know, 12, 18 months. It's not, well, it's just where we are today sort of thing. Here's an idea uh, or a kind of 
let's let's be honest and acknowledge things. The next version of vSAN that shipped with uh, vSphere, you can now have the option to have an all solid state system if you want to. So that must indicate there are certain business cases that customers come with where uh, having a spindle is an issue. And you mentioned it mm. yourself, the working set. If you just have cash and spindle and you have a sequen sequential workload, it's very easy for that sequential workload to just completely fill the cache. Once the cache is filled, the only place it can go is to a disk. Yeah. And then you have yeah. a, a potentially a, a performance difference. So it all hinges on the workload type. If your workload isn't sequential, then it's more random, and therefore things are going into the cache and going out of the cache, flush the disk into the cache, the cache isn't being completely flushed, then a hybrid model can work. So it's all down to the kind of model. And then the other thing yeah. I think is interesting is the next version of vSAN uh, supports a JBOD model, where uh, you can attach additional storage shelves. What a weird thing to say. Um, and I kind of look at that and think, well, that's a kind of tacit admission to some degree that uh, coupling very tightly the compute to the storage for some people works, the Lego brick approach, so long as you are consuming it in regular Lego brick chunks. But as soon as you're not, and the way you're consuming it is, I consume storage at a faster rate than I can uh, consume compute, you then need different models for the way you actually attach additional storage without unnecessarily buying more compute. So I think there is a kind of tacit admission that it's not like one or the other is right, it's you've got to look at what the customer is consuming and how they actually are consuming that stuff. Yeah, at the end of the day, it's about the requirements. Yeah, yeah it is. I hear what you're saying, yeah. And, and I don't think that, that's what I, you know, the, the point, I guess, is that maybe it's not one, I don't think it's ever going to be one size fits all. I don't, I don't think that's, you know, like, a, it'd be boring as well, wouldn't it, if there was just one product? Yeah, yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, I mean, so, it's bizarre, but some companies do behave that way and speak that way as if uh, their technology suits all customer cases in all circumstances. And whenever I've heard vendors say that when I was doing the vendor wags when I was independent, I used to think, hmm, so your, your, uh, your, your technology is this sort of uh, golden thing that solves every single problem in the data center for all customers. And I'm like, hmm, <laughs> I've never come across... Sounds like such, a sales pitch. Yeah, I've never come across <laughs> such a thing in the last 20 odd years of being in the industry. In fact, what my experience has been is you have this product of which the customer uses maybe 20 or 30% of the functionality. The other 70% is a mystery of them. And what they do is bitch about an aspect of the 20% that they use, which isn't exactly perfect and that they want you to refine and improve that 20% all the time because the other 70% or 80% is of no interest to them. And then the other thing i found with technologies is often the things that customers say there's a problem and you fix it is inherently part of the design of that technology and it can't be changed because it's part of the way this thing actually works and then as soon as you try and shift it to do something that it wasn't originally designed for Customers then go, oh, it doesn't work in in situation one, and you're like, yeah, because it was designed to solve problem X, you know. So like the whole, I know it's a cliche now, the spanner to drive home a nail kind of approach. But it, the reason that's a cliche is that there's some truth in it, that people endlessly try and use technologies 
and stretch them to a point where they come apart because they're trying to apply them to a model that they weren't originally designed for. So, you know, one, I mean, maybe in the future, we'll talk about the future, maybe in the future when we're old and grey, some of us are already a bit there already, there will be one product that solves all your problems, but I remain to be convinced by it, as I'm sure you are. Yeah, we'll, we'll all be connected to it, you know? We'll, we'll, all, we'll, all have it on, we'll all have our devices under our skin and we'll be flying that's around it, yeah. on, on, on jet skis in the sky. Yeah, that's when that yeah. will happen. Yeah. And, and we'll all join it at the end. <laughs> anyway, Craig, it's been uh, fantastic to talk to you again. I don't know when I will see you again. Will you be coming to VMworld US this year? Don't you know yet? Yeah, yeah, I'm hoping to. Yeah. So you'll probably be on booth duty, or you'll be speaking in a session, and I'll be on booth duty and speaking in a session, and we'll pass each other for about thirty seconds across the hall. Going, hey, Craig. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> there's there's always the now. parties, mate, and yeah, then there's, there's the, the VMUG booth as well. I'm, I'm sure I'll be there too. Yeah. So I'm sorry I didn't make it out to Australia this this year for the VMUGs, but I have other travel commitments to do, which it just made the route out to Melbourne and Sydney. Yeah, I understand, man. I you understand. Know, I, we, you were missed, yeah. We we did. We got the feedback from the event a couple of weeks back, and someone said, "There, why Mike wasn't Laverick? Mike Laverick here?" <laughs> <laughs> that Which I thought was funny. pretty good, yeah. You do realise that I paid somebody to write that, though, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. That was, it was a good, it was a good couple of events. We we always hold the Melbourne and Sydney ones within the same week, so that we can, you get know, help across, us, uh, yeah. us get some good guests out. Who, who we had did John Troyer. Who, who what rock stars came for this year then? Yeah, so 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 we had John Troyer, we had Vaughan Stewart, and we had uh, Chad Sackach. So. John, it was a good event. John Troyer, I've I've not heard of him. Who who's he? I don't know. Some some long haired hippie. Some new guy on the block. <laughs> like that. <laughs> anyway, oh, thanks very much for being on the show once again, and uh, let's hook up in in uh, VMworld this year and, and uh, make some time to have a beer. Yeah. Yeah, always good to see you, mate. So I look forward to it. Yeah. Cheers, man. And Thank thanks you. for the viewers, Sydney Harpy. You would only get this on the chinwag, you see. Roaming reporters around the globe. You know, next Where week, will I be next? Next week I need to speak to somebody who's by the pyramids or something like that. You know, the, the ten wonders of the world. That's what I need to do. That would be good, man. That would yeah. be good. Take it easy. Cheers, man. Thank you, yeah. Bye-bye.